Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dean Seal. Hey, hey. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Dean. Guys, we've got so much news to cover today. Um, we're actually going to do an all-host show so we can get through a bunch of stuff. One thing I did just kind of want to button up, last week we talked in our offbeat section about Stormy Daniels believing in ghosts, and that all came out of testimony in her uh, where she was on the stand uh, testifying against the disgraced attorney, Michael Avenatti, um, for allegedly defrauding her. Shortly after that, the very next day, he was actually convicted of defrauding her of some proceeds from a book advance. So I just want to kind of button that up since we talked about it last week. I guess his his tactic didn't work out then, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, who knows? Maybe somebody on the jury also believed in ghosts and was like, you know what? Stormy Daniels is very reliable. so i did just kind of want to tick that one off to to close the close up there um but because i'm me and i hope this will resonate with you guys i think it does i anxiously await the oscar nominations every year so i did want to talk about them for a second it's a good year for it i don't think they messed it up i don't know that's all i'm gonna say i don't think they messed it up i've only seen four of them so far i used to do this thing um for years and years where uh, AMC theaters had this 24 hour best picture marathon and I would intentionally right. not see the movies and do it with my girlfriends. And like, it was this fun. It's, it was basically like a slumber party in a movie theater. Yeah. Obviously COVID threw a monkey wrench in that. We're doing a version of that just at one of my friend's houses instead. Right. But I did want to note that none of the movies are about the law this year. And that bums mm. me out. Dang it. Or journalism. I don't think Yeah, it's usually at least one good journo pick or one good law pick. And yeah, I don't, I don't think we found any. You're right. Yeah. Nothing, nothing to sink our hooks in on that. So I guess it's just sparing the listeners from having to hear me go on and on about yet another legal movie. <laughs> what was your one from last year? Did you have? Are there uh, any well, Chicago seven last year. True. Oh, that's, yeah, right. that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's, there's usually at least one that has some legal scenes in it. And that one was a whole, you know, a whole movie about that trial. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'm disappointed that I can't dig into movies too much. So instead, Haley, you're going to keep us in the world of cinema. Oh, yes. So fortunately for us, um, the new Matrix movie is at the center of the uh, latest fight over movies being released in theaters and on streaming platforms at the same time. Um, This time, Warner Brothers is being accused of breach of contract by its longtime partner, Village Roadshow, which co-produced the latest Matrix movie, The Matrix Resurrections. And there's actually a lot more going on here than Village Roadshow just saying something like, hey, you weren't supposed to release it that way. The company has painted this picture of a rather broad conspiracy in which Warner Brothers has a so-called sweetheart deal with HBO Max and is using the release of the latest Matrix film to drive subscribers to the platform. Um, HBO Max is owned by Warner Media, which, of course, is Warner Brothers' parent company, and that's allegedly why they're working together. So a broad conspiracy is really right on brand with Matrix movies. Um, but I, I do want to talk about, like, how is it supposed to be released? I mean, we're in weird times, so it's not that unusual at this point to have things roll out streaming and also in theaters. But I know that's not how it used to be. Yeah. So Village Roadshow says that it's worked with Warner Brothers for more than 25 years. It's paid the studio over $4.5 billion to produce and distribute dozens of blockbuster films. And usually how it goes, per their distribution agreements, is Warner Brothers is required to distribute each film 
in a manner, quote, consistent with industry standards and also, quote, consistent with customary commercial practices. Um, And the studio has also allegedly agreed not to enter into any of these sweetheart agreements. That's obviously all important because movies generally make more money from theatrical releases than these streaming releases. As of the filing of the lawsuit, Resurrections had grossed only about $148 million at the box office, which Village Roadshow said um, was pretty abysmal compared to the earlier films. I love the kind of figures we get into with Hollywood. $148 million, abysmal, terrible. Right. <laughs> Right. Compared to those movies that came out 20 years ago. Uh, it just <laughs> yeah. feels like the comparative scale is a little off there. Yeah. Um, so Village Roadshow is alleging that Warner Brothers knew that releasing Resurrections on HBO Max would destroy box office sales and pave the way for, quote, massive piracy, which I never really thought about that with streaming releases that I guess it is easier to pirate something off your laptop than like taking a camcorder into the theater old school style. Sure. And I guess it still counts as like some form of piracy if you're just like rampantly sharing your login too, right? So there's lots of ways to get at it. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. But so all that said, I mean, isn't this a pretty fair change um, for Warner Brothers to want to make? I mean, I I think we've seen similar kind of moves in the movies that have come out over the last couple of years. Yeah, you would think so. Um, But what's interesting is Village Roadshow says the pandemic isn't an excuse here. Hmm. Um, Resurrections was initially slated to be released in 2022, but Warner Brothers moved up its release date specifically so it would be included in its slate of simultaneous releases in 2021. And it's alleging that that move was specifically designed to pump up HBO Max. And what's more, Warner Brothers then allegedly moved all of its wholly owned films, you know, movies it didn't make with Village Roadshow, to 2022 so that they weren't part of that simultaneous release slate and would therefore do better at the box office. That's all, obviously, according to the complaint. And on top of that, Village Roadshow says that Warner Brothers is slapping other movies they made together onto HBO Max to drive subscribers, but Village Roadshow isn't seeing any money from that. Um, And the companies are also fighting over Wonka, that new uh, Timothy Chalamet movie on Willy Wonka. Hot Wonka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Uh, So uh, what's going on with with the Wonka dispute? Yeah. So Village Roadshow basically says it should have contractual rights to that film because it's a prequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, (laughs) which it helped pay for. Right. But Warner Brothers is very interestingly arguing that it's not a prequel and it's not related to Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. And so Village Roadshow isn't entitled to any rights. So they're they're not trying to open up a Charlie in the Chocolate Factory like extended universe is what is what I'm seeing here. I guess not. I'm kind of surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, what does Warner Brothers say about all these allegations? I mean, at least my head's spinning a little about how No wonder things are dropping on and off of streaming platforms. There's so many platforms, so many disputes like this that get really wonky. Um, What's Warner Brothers have to say for themselves? Yeah, thus far, not much. The studio said in a statement that it's taken Village Roadshow to arbitration outside of this. And that's about it. So it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out because this, of course, is not the only litigation over straight-to-streaming releases. Scarlett Johansson famously went after Disney over Marvel's decision to immediately release Black Widow on Disney+. Plus, Johansson said the move took big chunks out of the film's box office performance and her compensation, 
But that suit was settled in September. Oh, okay. So I, I guess I didn't even realize that the Johansson suit had already been settled. Is that, was that a uh, like an undisclosed settlement? Do we not know the terms of that? Yeah. Yep, exactly. They just both issued their standard little, we're glad we reached an agreement statements and right. didn't say anything else. I feel like we're going to continue to have tons of growing pains in this industry. So all eyes on some of these disputes to see if we get more details than just an undisclosed settlement. So for our second story of the day, I want to update us on One of my pet areas, labor law. Last year or so has been pretty big for the labor movement. We had a month that was so busy, it was dubbed Striketober. (laughs) Uh, We had big organizing drives at at really brand name companies like Amazon. And all eyes have been on how the pandemic has basically rattled workers and led to a ton of collective action. That leads me to today's update. Seven Starbucks employees in Memphis were fired allegedly because of their support for a unionization campaign. So we've definitely heard about unionization efforts at Starbucks before, right? Yeah, you've definitely heard about this. This has been in the news, kind of popping up sporadically across the country. So here's basically what you need to know is the backdrop. The union, which is called Workers United, filed a petition in January to represent employees at a Memphis Starbucks. It's part of this larger organizing campaign for Starbucks shops around the country, A few months ago, workers at Starbucks in Buffalo, New York, actually became the first union shop for that company. And dozens of other stores all over the U.S. have filed similar petitions to try to unionize. That includes places like Boston, Seattle, Mesa, Arizona. So you can see it's, you know, not regional. It's really a little bit everywhere. Yeah. And I I mean, I may just be misremembering, but I don't recall firings, at least as high profile firings in the other um, union drives. So what what's going on in Memphis? Yeah, there's been some stuff going on that we'll get to in a second. But let's talk about Memphis first, because it is um, sort of a, a really startling fact pattern that both sides have really dug into their stances on it. So this all started when workers in Memphis participated in an interview about their organizing efforts with local media. And they did that interview at the store. Workers United says Starbucks terminated, quote, almost the entire union organizing committee. And they were terminated for allegedly violating policies, but ones that the union says were basically never enforced before. Workers United calls this straight up union busting. They say it's, um, you know, the firings were carried out to intimidate other workers and retaliate against the ones who wanted to unionize. Nikki Taylor is one of those workers. She was a shift supervisor. And she said in a statement, she had not previously even heard of the policies that the company cited in her termination. Starbucks, of course, is like, no, 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 Um, that's not what happened. They say the fired workers violated safety and security policies that all staff members are trained on, including the seven workers who had been fired. The stuff that they allegedly were fired for was stuff like remaining in the store after closing time with a non-employee, letting some non-employees behind the counters and leaving the front door of the store unlocked during non-business hours, all of which is outlined as against policy at Starbucks. The union came up pretty strong, and so Starbucks' response was equally strong. Here's what they had to say. This is not us cherry-picking seven partners who happened to work at the union. This is us acknowledging that on that evening, these seven partners violated multiple policies that put other partners' lives at risk and showed an unwillingness to understand what our policies are there for and there to do. Tell us a little bit more about this charge itself, though. 
Yeah. So it's one thing for the union to be like, hey, that's not fair. It's a different step for them to actually go to the NLRB and file an unfair labor practice charge. Of course. And that's exactly what they did this week. They accused Starbucks of violating the National Labor Relations Act, which protects union organizing activity and has a lot of rules. But this arguably falls well within that bucket. So that's what they're saying to the NLRB. The union's looking for injunctive relief here to stop any further interference with union the union campaign going on at that Memphis location. And one thing I think it's worth pointing out is that the NLRB is probably going to take this pretty seriously because the NLRB's general counsel, her name is Jennifer Abruzzo, she promised in August to aggressively seek this kind of injunction for unfair labor practice charges, especially in situations where workers have been fired during an organizing drive. So she said that in August. Then this happened, and the fact pattern fits almost to a T what she was talking about. Also, it's important to know this charge is not the first against Starbucks um, alleging various unfair labor practice charges. It's getting very contentious. So workers in Seattle filed a charge in January saying the company had illegally disciplined a worker for participating in union efforts at the store and also for testifying at the NLRB about the campaign itself. And employees in Buffalo, the one that actually did become the first unionized Starbucks store, they filed a charge in November saying that Starbucks had used an anti-union task force of company executives to try to dissuade them from what they were doing at that store with their unionizing. So all of this is just to say, organizing at these various Starbucks stores is really heating up and we're undoubtedly going to see more in the months ahead as things continue in the other locations around the nation. For our main story today, I wanted to turn our attention to something that's beginning a lot of traffic on our site this week. A judicial watchdog group known as Fix the Court has filed a complaint with the Fifth Circuit over a hearing from last month in which one of the appellate court's judges insisted that an attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice remove his mask while presenting in-person oral arguments. The judge in question is U.S. Circuit Judge Jerry E. Smith, who sits on a three-member panel for the Fifth Circuit in a whistleblower retaliation case in which the Justice Department attorney, named Josh Koppel, represents the FBI. The details of the case itself aren't really important here, so I'm just going to jump right into the details of the incident. According to this complaint, Koppel had filed an unopposed motion to participate in the oral arguments remotely on December 21st, saying that he was hesitant to travel from his home in Washington to the Fifth Circuit's New Orleans courtroom for in-person arguments, particularly because he had two young children at home who weren't eligible to be vaccinated at the time. But the following day, the Fifth Circuit denied that motion in a one-sentence order, meaning that Koppel would have to fly to the Big Easy on January 6th. And so he did, and as Koppel was about to launch into his oral arguments, uh, another judge on the panel asked him a question, and after he responded from behind a mask, Judge Smith stepped in and told him, go ahead and remove your mask, if you will. And that's a quote from a recording of the hearing. Yeah, that's not something you expect to hear every day if you're listening back to a transcript of an argument. The judge is saying like, hey, take your mask off when you're talking. Right. Yeah, there's definitely some awkwardness. I feel like we, we've we all kind of heard that awkward like mask request before from like the old guy behind the counter at the bodega or something like right. that. Right. Yeah. It's usually yeah. not in such a formal setting. I mean, it, right. it, it usually is just like you're, you know, like you said, like in a store or something like that. And this attorney already asked to not travel. So he clearly was already a little nervous about the situation. 
Right. And he, I mean, he had specifically said that it was, it was a health concern. I remember this was early January when Omicron was raging and there's still a lot of confusion about, um, you know, what that surge was going to be like. So um, after Judge Smith had asked him to remove his mask, Koppel replied that he would, quote, prefer to leave it on if that's okay. But before he even finished that sentence, Judge Smith told him, quote, we would prefer that you remove it. Thank you. Which Koppel then did. Yeah. Yikes. That's um, so here's what's tough about this. I have never been a litigator in a courtroom, but I remember doing some real basic things in moot court in law school. And mm-hmm. even in that setting where it's not real, when somebody is playing the judge, you feel like you just have to do everything they say. So right. when it's a real judge, this is uh, I mean, I think awkward is an understatement, perhaps. Um, what what yeah. happened like falling out the fallout from this incident, Dean? Right. So the Department of Justice predictably hasn't provided any any comment on this incident. The issue was instead raised by, like I said, the watchdog group Fix the Court. And Fix the Court claims that Judge Smith violated the judge's code of conduct, particularly a requirement for judges to be patient, dignified, respectful, and courteous to litigants, jurors, witnesses, and lawyers. So here's a quote from Gabe Roth, who leads Fix the Court. Given that older Americans, a category that most federal judges fall into, are far more likely to get sick and die from COVID than anyone else, wearing a mask should not be considered an act of defiance or disrespect in the courtroom, especially at a time when Omicron was raging and its severity was not fully understood. So, I mean, Roth is definitely correct in that most federal judges are older Americans. Uh, Judge Smith, notably, is a 75-year-old Texan who was appointed to the Fifth Circuit when Ronald Reagan was president. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. The judges would be in an at-risk category, but <laughs> it maybe is a little more surprising that he didn't just let the guy keep the mask on. What was mm-hmm. the real deal here? Could he just not hear him through the mask? I know that that's often cited as why people accidentally take off their mask without thinking or something like that, that somebody just can't hear them. Right. Well, according to the complaint, there's no evidence on the record that Judge Smith couldn't actually hear what Koppel was saying from behind his mask. And that's why Fixed the Court is questioning the nature of Judge Smith's uh, response and whether it might be telling of some bias or maybe some political leanings that might be problematic for a person in his position, or if he's just not taking the virus that seriously. Um, Fixed the Court also notably is um, taking issue with the fact that the two other judges on the panel didn't, then did not report Judge Smith um, for what they're calling his misconduct. Yeah, and also not just not reporting him, but like they were there. They could have, they're also judges. They could have said right. something like Even in the moment. We, he says, we would right. prefer you remove it. Um, right. Unified front. So now it's, it's hard to say where this is going to go. The chief judge at the Fifth Circuit is going to review the complaint and she has a few different options in front of her. She can either just throw it out. Um, she can conclude it if some voluntary corrective action takes place. I assume maybe an apology of some sort. They can also conclude it if some intervening event comes out and moots the complaint, or they can refer it up to a special committee. And if the chief judge goes for that option, then Judge Smith will actually respond to the suit's allegations. But regardless of where this goes, I thought it was really interesting and probably getting a lot of attention just because right now mask mandates are kind of being toyed with. I know some areas around the country are starting to loosen mask mandates, but just generally, I think we've all been kind of wrestling with how and when to wear masks. You know, we recognize certain situations where they feel absolutely necessary. Then there are other ones where, you know, I I remember running uh, outside in a mask for a few months there in the pandemic. So it's always kind of hard to know like when, when those masks are absolutely super necessary, but also, you know, it's almost like a work issue kind of like a, I, I do wonder how are lawyers looking at this case and do they feel that masks do affect their communication in any way? And 
you know, does it have any kind of hindrance when it's being applied in the courtroom setting? You can also sort of imagine a future world where let's say mask mandates are gone in many places, but there are still people who are, say, um, immunocompromised or just extra cautious because they have young kids or whatever, and they want to continue wearing masks voluntarily. Right. If a judge tells you not to, does that color your trial? Does it feel like the judge already doesn't like you? Um, right. And that's a softer concern, I think, but one that could really persist if it becomes commonplace for certain judges just out of, uh, you know, their own preference to tell people to take off masks. Right. Yeah, it's definitely there's uh, I think a lot of ethical considerations that are going to go into it. So it's cool, at least that, you know, we'll have the chief judge of the Fifth Circuit take a look at this case and see how she feels. Super Bowl, and I wanted to touch down on a football-related lawsuit as our offbeat story today. Touch down on a football-related lawsuit? Oh, thank you. Dean, thank, thank you, you so oh. much for noticing. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Couldn't Beautiful. resist. Um, yeah. Nice. So here's the top line of, I should say, here's the score. Uh, hmm. The nice. New York Jets and the Giants have been sued for deceptively cashing in on New York's cachet by tricking fans into think they play there rather than New Jersey. Oof, got him. I feel like I, I have some friends in New Jersey who get this criticism themselves sometimes when they say they, that they're from New York and they're really Jersey City. Come on. You, uh, you have many friends, including me, who lives in Jersey City, New You're Jersey. Right. So, uh, yeah, I'm offended for myself and for others. Not going to hide my um, displeasure here. Not going to be objective in talking about this. Um, just letting it out there. But, yeah, the Garden State's a great place to be. Just want to say that right up top. <laughs> Here's what the suit itself actually says, though, just so we know what we're talking about. A Manhattan resident named Abidel Serrero filed a proposed class action in Manhattan federal court arguing that he and other New York-based fans are forced to shell out money and time to travel to the team's home in East Rutherford, New Jersey. So that's northern New Jersey. The Giants moved there. Um, they used to be in Queens. They moved in the mid-70s, and the Jets moved in 84. So they've been in New Jersey for a long time, you guys. The complaint says that if the Yankees or the Mets, the Knicks, the Rangers, like any of the other New York teams, if they have to play in New York and pay for premium real estate and the taxes that New York charges to be officially branded a New York sports franchise, then it's only fair that the NFL's Giants and Jets should have to do the same thing or else they should have to change their name to accurately reflect the location of their stadium. Wow. So the complaint goes on, and he also said that the New York-based fans are, and this is a quote, they are insulted, ridiculed, harassed, tormented, and bullied. <laughs> and, end quote. Um, uh, all of that happening by other fans because the New York-named teams actually play in New Jersey. Well, I, I wow. just want to say off the bat, I'm so sorry for if you felt insulted or ridiculed or harassed about my Jersey City comment. I, I just want to address that now. Uh, yeah, Phil, all those things, Dean. I mean, all of them. I've liked you so much on the show until this episode. Um, You're going to sue me now, I know. <laughs> well, you know, there is more to insult me in this complaint. It goes on to say that, quote, 
New York is a much more recognizable, powerful, and valuable brand than New Jersey. Wow. And he sort of lists out a bunch of what makes New York awesome, which I also agree with. Love New York, too. But can't you love them both? But he lists out stuff like famous residents and landmarks, the significance and pop culture of New York, and just basically says, like, New York's way better than stinky old New Jersey. Okay, this the attorneys representing this guy must have had an absolute ball writing this complaint. Lifelong New Yorkers, for sure. (laughs) I would recommend that people read it if this is intriguing to them at all, (laughs) because it was kind of a delight to read, even though it did make my blood boil. So he goes on to outline how hard it is to travel to New Jersey for the games. So he compares it to like the time it takes to get to the other professional stadiums that are actually in New York. So for other sports, not NFL. And, you know, he talks about the alleged expense of getting all the way out to New Jersey as if it is a foreign land. (laughs) So for the record, I live just as close to New York as um, many to Manhattan as many of the other boroughs. But that's whatever. Yeah. So he really hates it. Yeah. So, I mean, is the whole point of this uh, complaint just to dunk on New Jersey all day? Or is there something that is the suit is actually seeking out here? <clears throat> My personal opinion is this is just designed to dunk on New Jersey. But if I'm <laughs> taking a slightly more objective stance here, I can sort of tell you a little bit more about like what he's looking for, what he says the damages are, that kind of stuff. This guy wants to represent, and I quote, millions of New Yorkers who are forced to travel out of state to see these games played in their home stadiums. I think millions may be a bit of an exaggeration, but there's some other exaggerations here, including exaggerating how New Jersey is. It's lovely. So he's seeking a court order that would force the teams to either change their names so they'd become the New Jersey Giants and New Jersey Jets. Love that. Or to relocate to New York when their leases at the MetLife Stadium are up in 2025. That was really nice to say, but you can wait until your lease is up. Like, I don't want you to break a lease. Very charitable there. Very, very much so. So in case you're wondering what the causes of action actually are, since this suit sounds crazy to me as a New Jersey person, for the record, it's false advertising, deceptive practices, unjust enrichment, and also a civil racketeering claim. So (laughs) racketeering, got a lot of stuff in it. (laughs) Um, And I would like to point this out. I know we often on this show talk about how complaints can throw out any number they want to as what the damages are, and that happens a lot, but this one is more eye-popping than most. The lawsuit says the class should be awarded $6 billion in damages. Billion with a B. (laughs) I would love to see a damages expert, like, break that down. Like, here's the formula. I mean, there there's some actual like figures in the complaint, but a lot of them stem around stuff like it cost me two hundred dollars to take an Uber all the way from Manhattan to East Rutherford, New Jersey, stuff like that. And it's like, okay, are we really going to add that up to six billion? All right. Right. Also, don't take an Uber, man. There are other (laughs) options. Um, Well, that's part of the complaint. He says that there are no good options to get to um, godforsaken New Jersey. I live in L.A. and I really take offense with people in your region complaining about transportation options. Oh, sure. There genuinely is no way for me to get to SoFi except sitting in traffic for an hour, either behind my own wheel or paying 200 for an Uber. Right. (laughs) I mean, I have been making fun of this because to me, I'm like, yeah, let's go ahead and rename the Teams New Jersey. I have no problem with that. I think that'd be great. But this isn't quite as wild as you would think in just seeing this complaint. Uh, your first foray into the names of these teams because it's come up before 
New York state lawmakers actually floated a bill in 2007 that would have forced out-of-state teams to remove New York from their names. So this has bothered other Hmm. people as well. Hmm. That bill died in committee. It never really made it anywhere. But it was bothersome enough that someone introduced it. So, you know, that's something. Mm -hmm. And according to um, Suerto's LinkedIn, he used to actually work as a legislative aide to New York City Councilman Francisco Moya. And that was back when Moya was a state assemblyman. So he maybe has learned that this could be pursued in a few different avenues. So after filing the lawsuit, his attorney told Law 360 that if this doesn't pan out well in the court system, they may turn to the legislature to see if they can get some traction there. Wow. Just using all the branches of government for really important stuff like this. That's good. Um, Yeah. I think I should just reestablish my New Jersey pride and say, what would be wrong with it being the New Jersey Giants? Maybe that would be great. <laughs> I, yeah, I think the Jersey Jets sounds pretty good. And uh, Jersey Jets, that does. That's, that's got nice alliteration. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I got to see what all my friends on Long Island would think of that, though. I got a feeling they would, they would see it the same way. <laughs> I mean, I'm also really one to talk. I don't really have much of a sports background as, as is well established on this show. So me weighing on, on what the names of teams should be is laughable. But obviously, some people are taking it very seriously. And with that, I think we can wrap up today's show. Thanks a lot for being with me, Dean. Of course, happy to be here. And Haley. Yes, thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Katie Bueller, Beverly Banks, and Max Yeager. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you listen to the show. That helps other people find us. And if anything intrigued you today, check out our stories about it. You can find those on our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.